So I used to hear my mentor in ministry, my previous pastor, um, after he would preach some sermons, he would come back to us at staff meeting, and he would say something like this, um, I often feel after I preach a sermon that it needs a follow-up sermon, and I felt that last week. Okay, so what we talked about last week is our freedom in Christ, which is a beautiful truth, Beautiful truth. Here's what we talked about. We talked about how our freedom in Christ is both a condition and an activity. It's a a state. It's a position. We are free in Christ. We are no longer slaves. And what this is pointing to is that we have a freedom from the obligation of the law. Jesus has fulfilled our obligation for us. When we trust in Jesus, he's fulfilled the obligations of the law. All of his work is now applied to us. It's now our position that we have in Jesus. Beautiful truth. But secondly, it also talks about our activity. We're now freed to things. Since we're no longer slaves and under the obligation, we're no longer slaves to our sin, we are now freed to walk in obedience to God. And so now we can serve other people. We can listen to God's instruction and his commands in our life, that we can live a life pursuing reconciliation in our relationships relationships, beautiful truths about the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Now, we ended by talking about how there was one command in that entire passage, and that command was to stand firm. And this idea of standing firm is it implies a battle or a conflict that's taking place inside of us. Those of us that have expressed faith in Jesus We experience a battle or a conflict in our life. This is the stand firm is a military term, meaning it's keep alert, be strong, resist attack, meaning that's what you should expect is that there are going to be attacks. There are going to be temptations. There's going to be a war that's going on inside of you. And so the response that I felt for you as we left last week, I, you can't fit everything into a sermon, and so you have to have a sermon that follows up, and that's what tonight's sermon will be. And so the question is, if we're to stand firm, then Paul, how do we do that? Paul, how do we stand firm? How do we live our condition? How do we live from our freedom that we have in Jesus? How do we stand firm in that? How do we live our freedom too that we can now act? Like, what does that look like, Paul? If you, call, if you tell us that there's going to be attacks and there's going to be things coming our way, then what does it look like for us to stand firm? And our passage tonight gives us that instruction. Essentially, what Paul tells us the answer is, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the means by which we live freedom from, that we live out our condition, and we also live freedom to, that we participate, that we do our activity that God has freed us to do. We see this because in nine verses, the nine verses that Lisa just read, you see this, the Holy Spirit referenced seven times throughout those nine verses. And so essentially, here's what we're going to do tonight, all right, how, how we're going to wrestle this, attack this. We first are going to look at the battle of the Christian life, all right? There is an inward battle. Stand firm implies that there's a battle or a conflict. We need to sit with that, and we need to wrestle with it. 
We need to understand, unpack what Paul's teaching us tonight and realize that there really is an inward battle, an inward conflict that's going on inside of us. Paul wrestles with this in our passage. We're going to tease it out and we'll have an application to that. And then secondly, we're going to look at the power of the Christian life. How do we live into this battle? How do we live our, out our freedoms that we have in Jesus Christ? Well, Paul gives us that answer in the Holy Spirit, and so we're going to look at that. And so as we do this, as we unpack the battle of the Christian life, as we unpack the power of the Christian life, here's my prayer for us. You came in, and maybe you're feeling the, this battle very intensely inside of you as you came in here. Maybe it's not as intense for others, but you still feel it. You maybe even can look back on certain periods of your life where it's like, man, I could feel that inner struggle, that inner battle that was taking place inside of me. Well, I want us to wrestle, see what that looks like. But here's, you may have looked, you look at those wrestles and those struggles and those battles, and here maybe is your response. Well, the Christian life seems like a battle that I cannot win. Well, as we're wrestling through this passage, here's my prayer for us, that you would have a transformation that happens, that your view of the Christian life would no longer be a battle that you cannot win, but now as you leave this place, it's a battle that you cannot lose. That's a place I want us to be at by the time we leave here tonight. So for us to do this, we need to wrestle with the battle of the Christian life first. We see this in verses 16 through 17. I'm going to reread them. We're going to focus on verse 17. I'm going to unpack this battle of the Christian life that we experience. So verse 16 says this. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. All right, so here's what Paul is unpacking for us. Paul says the reason we must walk by the Spirit is because there is an inner war, there's an inner tension going on inside every Christian. And it's the battle between the flesh and the Spirit. The flesh is our fallen, broken bodies and the desires that go with it. And the Spirit is a resurrected life that we have in Jesus. When we place faith in Christ, we get the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes to live inside of us and it resurrects us internally. Like we are raised with Jesus. The new life that Jesus had as he walked out of that tomb is the very work that the Spirit has worked inside of us. And so the best way that you can kind of talk about these things is you, you experience both at the same time. You have this dual reality that you are alive in Jesus but yet at the same time struggle with the broken bodily flesh that you have right now. And the best depiction that you can kind of get of this struggle in the Bible is Lazarus in John chapter 11. What happens in John chapter 11, Jesus has his friend Lazarus. He receives report that his friend Lazarus is dying and Jesus waits and after a short time, he then travels to go see his friend. He shows up to a funeral. And what's happening at this funeral is um, the, the people are mourning the death of Lazarus, Jesus' friend. 
And Jesus is moved by the emotion of everything that's happening. We get that Jesus weeps here. He's overwhelmed by the consequences of sin, which are death. And so the, what we see Jesus do in this passage is he goes to the tomb of Lazarus and he commands them to move the stone. And as they, he commands them to move the stone, Martha, which is one of Lazarus's sisters, comes to Jesus and tells Jesus, Jesus, Lazarus has been dead for four days, and the stench is there. The stench that associated with a decaying body is there with Lazarus. So in this essence, she's saying, don't tell them to remove the stone. We can already smell the stench of death. If you remove the stone, then the stench is going to be even worse. But Jesus proceeds. He instructs them to remove the stone. And then he calls to Lazarus specifically. And it's good that he calls to Lazarus specifically because if he, if he just says, raised from the dead, the power of Jesus, you just have a bunch of dead people that are walking out of tombs. But he, he speaks Lazarus' name specifically. And what happens is Lazarus comes out. And what's reported about Lazarus is as he comes out, he's still wrapped in linen from head to toe. Whenever a person is, uh, when they pass away, they are wrapped in cloth, they're anointed with oils and spices, and then they're placed in the tomb to try to cover up the stench of death. Well, what happens whenever Lazarus walks out is our condition. Lazarus is fully alive because of Jesus. He walks out of the tomb fully alive because the power of the resurrection lies with Jesus. But at the same time, he is still clothed in the garments of death, covered in linens from head to toe. The stench of death is still on him. And this is our reality right now. It's what a lot of people call the now, but not yet. We are fully alive in Jesus when we place our faith in Christ, but yet at the same time, we still have these fleshly, worldly bodies that are trending towards death along with the sinful desires that still go with them. And what we see is this inward battle between this Holy Spirit that now lives inside of us and then the worldly, fleshly, broken, sinful desires that still live inside of us because we still bear this flesh. That's the inner wrestle that every single one of us experiences when we've placed faith in Christ. They are working against one another. This is why Paul says at the, at the end of 17, you don't do what you want. Here's what Paul's saying. You have the reality, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, which means your deepest down desire are now the godly desires. You want to you walk in the Spirit. You want to do the things that God has instructed you to do. These are your deep desires and passions down inside of you, but you realize because of the way that you experience life that it's not your natural inclination. Your natural inclination is still this body, this deathly garment that grips to your body. And Paul gives us, he's very explicit in what these struggles are, the, the desires of the flesh. We get a whole entire list from Paul. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to take a moment. I have a, a chart that's going to be up for you because I love you. Everybody loves charts, amen? 
And so there's a list of all these things. I've placed them into four different categories so you can try to get a picture of what Paul is working through. What he's given us is really holistic experience of the, the, um, the desires of the flesh that we experience as Christians here and now. And so the four, does, the four different buckets are sex, worship, relationships, and pleasure. Let me work through each of the different categories, all right? So um, what we see is you, Paul lists out sexual immorality, which is talking about experience of intimacy outside of the confines of marriage, so you're not married. Moral impurity, which is unnatural sexual temptation or even the practice of it. And promiscuity is the uncontrolled sexual desires, what we would say leads to like things like sexual abuse, that you are, it's not a consensual thing, but it's something that's forced on somebody else. These are the desires and the works of the flesh. Second, you have worship. Paul talks about idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry is anything that we take and we worship in the spot that only is reserved for God. A lot of times this is talked about over-desire. We take the good things of this world and we place them in the place of where God is and we worship those things. They're the things that our hearts and our lives pursue after in place of God himself. The other thing is sorcery. And this is talking about faking the power of God, that you are trying to portray the power that is at work in and through God and you're trying to display it in your own life, but it's absent of God himself. Then third, you have relationships. And uh, a pastor I really looked up to, Tim Keller, he puts this uh, whole list into two different groups, destructive attitudes in relationships, and then the result of those destructive uh, attitudes. And so here's how he, how he points it out, right? So he talks about selfish ambition, This is competitive, self-seeking spirits that live inside of us. It's where you live for yourself and you alone. You don't have a consideration for other people or this is your natural inclination. This is your natural desire. You live for yourself and you alone, you have the selfish ambition. Envy, you you want what other people have. It's the idea that grass is always greener on the other side. You're always looking at what other people have and you always think that must be better than what I have personally. Jealousy, which is a zeal and an energy of a hungry ego, means that you're never satisfied. You're always striving and longing for what you do not have. And then lastly is hatreds, or you're a hostile, opposing attitude. You're always playing devil's advocate. You're always the person that is the person you don't want in a conversation. You're always causing arguments that are happening. And so the result of these destructive attitudes are the other four that we see in this relational category. It's strife. You're constantly picking fights. That's the experience of your relationships. You have outbursts of anger. There's fits of rage. When you don't get your way, you respond in outbursts of anger. Dissensions, divisions between people. This leads to those outbursts of anger. It's what causes the, the dividing in relationships. And then you have factions, which are the permanent parties and the warring groups. When we have these things at work inside of us, the destructive attitudes, the results are of these destructive attitudes are strife, outbursts of anger, dissensions, and factions. Paul's saying, We all experience these. 
These are the desires of the flesh that are waging war against the spirit who now lives inside of us. Now, I've broken this out from the rest of the sermon because I want us to wrestle with this application. Paul lists this here because it's something that we all experience. And so here's how we move forward. We make our battle known. You make your battle known. All right? Say this with me. All right? I'm very participatory. I need you to speak out. All right? So say this after me. All right? I'm in a battle. Let's say it again. I'm in a battle. Look, here's the lie of the devil. Anytime that you're experiencing this war inside of you, these dueling realities, spirit and the flesh, here's the lie that the devil always tells you, that you're always the only one that's fighting that very thing. You're the only one. You're the only one that is experiencing this inward divide inside of you, and what he's wanting you to do is to remain quiet. He wants to isolate you. He wants you to feel like you are all alone. But the truth of the reality is that every single one of us have struggled with something in this list, if not all of it, just this past week. Just this past week, you struggled with this very list. You know how I know that? I struggled with everything in this list this past week. Here's just a few things that I experienced this past week, and maybe you can relate with me. I struggled with dissatisfaction. The idea of this jealousy that Paul's unpacking here in this list, I experienced that. I spent some time with some other pastors and church planters, these residents that are training for ministry. And as they're sharing stories, there's one guy that's sharing stories about how there's multiple churches that are like sending people with him. We planted in the middle of COVID. We didn't get that opportunity here whenever we planted this church. You know what's going on inside of me? Jealousy. As I'm hearing what's going on with this guy, the desire of my flesh, that must be nice. That must be really nice. That wasn't our story. I also got into a spat with Cherish. (laughs) I was selfish. I caused a fight in our home And I was shifting blame. And we experienced what was, instead of the reconciliation that we've been freed to, we experienced the opposite. Because of me. And that's just to get started. (laughs) And look, you experience a lot of this too. Here's, Here's what I really want for us as a church. I want it to become the norm that we declare our struggles rather than living under the lie of the devil that we are all alone. That we voice that we are in a battle to one another because the truth of the reality is that every single one of us that have placed faith in Christ are experiencing the same battle. We are not gonna let the lie of the evil one be the thing that rules our life. We are going to declare what is the true reality for all of us, that we are in a battle, that we are open, that we share vulnerably, 
and we do not hold that over one another because we're all in the same boat. This is the battle of the Christian life, that you have both the Holy Spirit, when you place faith in Christ, you get the gift of the Holy Spirit, which now are the ruling desires, the deep down desires that you have inside of you, but yet at the same time, you still are dealing with this stinking flesh and all of its desires, and you feel how they are opposed to one another. And rather than hiding, we're a church that declares it so that we can work with one another in the power of the Christian life to move forward. So that's just the first part. Paul Paul says that God has given us the power to live the Christian life in verses 16 and 25. And so here's... The power of the Christian life, like like what you said, is the Holy Spirit, all right? And we see this in his two commands. There's two commands that he gives us here. The first one we see in verse 16 is that we walk by the Spirit. And then verse 25 is that we keep in step with the Spirit, all right? So let's look at them in order because they mean a little bit different of things. And then I want to kind of bring it back together by looking at the fruit of the Spirit, all right? So the first one is this, verse 16. says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, we need to notice the order here. Paul gives a command, and then he gives a promise. He gives the command, walk by the Spirit, and then the promise that you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For us to experience the power of the Christian life It means first saying a yes before we can say a no. We first say a yes to Jesus before we can say no to the desires of our flesh. Here's what I mean, all right? So we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live within us, and now we live by the Holy Spirit. Here's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He ministers the presence of Christ in your life. The Holy Spirit, his primary work is that he ministers the presence of Jesus to you. We get this from John 15. This is one of the other primary passages that you see throughout all the Bible where you hear about this idea of fruit, all right? What Jesus says here is that you abide in me and I will abide in you. You remain in me, and I will remain in you. And as a result of this, your life will produce fruit. He's talking about this idea of a garden and your life being deeply rooted in Jesus, and the result is now fruit that takes place. The question you have to ask whenever Jesus says, remain in in me and I in you, is how do you do that, Jesus? How does that happen? Well, at the end of that chapter, what Jesus says is that he sends a holy counselor. The Holy Spirit, whenever he goes to see the Father, he will send the Spirit that will now come and live within each and every Christian. And so what happens is the Holy Spirit, his primary ministry, which is seen in the title that Jesus gives him, is he counsels you. He ministers the presence of Jesus to you and your life. And so as you think about what is happening here, 
what the Holy Spirit does is as you are walking through life, you walk by the Spirit, he counsels the presence of Jesus in your life, essentially how you can boil this down is that he continues to preach the good news of Jesus to you in your life. He applies the gospel to you. Specifically, he reminds you who you are in Jesus. So um, think about this, all right? So as the Holy Spirit, he now lives inside of you. You don't have to travel to a place to go experience the presence of God. It's no longer in a temple. You are now the temple, which means the Holy Spirit now goes with you wherever you are. So it doesn't matter what season you're in. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're at. The Holy Spirit is always at work ministering the presence of Jesus to your life, reminding you about who you are in Jesus and what he has accomplished for you. How this fleshes itself out. We preach the gospel to us, to ourselves regularly. This is the work of the Christian life that you are constantly preaching the good news of Jesus to you. And the Holy Spirit is affirming that. He's speaking the truth to your life. You're remembering who you are in Jesus, and this is all happening because the Holy Spirit is amening it. He's affirming it. He's saying, yes, what this is true about you. So anytime you, we, see, we see people go and share the good news of Jesus— in places that need it, they're called missionaries. And so every time that you preach the gospel, you are unleashing this tiny, many missionaries deep down into the crevices of your own soul that are preaching the realities of who you are in Jesus, that you are righteous, you're seen as without fault, because of what Jesus has done for you. You are righteous. You are the son of the living God, meaning that you get all of what the inheritance of the father as the first son, Jesus has shared his status as the first son. You get all of the inheritance that comes with being a part of God's family. You're now seen as a co-heir with Jesus, the kingdom of God. You get to live with Jesus as a co-heir in that kingdom. You are blessed. All the realities of the spiritual blessings that Jesus had are now yours. Full access to God. Life without shame. Guilt has been paid for. This is all you. This is all your realities. And so as you walk, it doesn't matter what season, it doesn't matter what stage of life, this is the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. He's constantly reminding you about the work that Jesus has done on your behalf and your realities that you have in him. You walk by the Spirit. You progress through this life by the Spirit. You live according to what the Holy Spirit says about you, not what you and your conscience say about you. And what the result of this is, is two things. It's deep affection and it's confidence, confident assurance. Deep affection and confident assurance. You have personal fellowship 
with Jesus. Everything that Jesus has accomplished for you, look, it's applied to your life now through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not just something that you look forward to with great anticipation that one day I won't have a heavy conscience. One day I won't feel the burden of my own sin. One day I won't have the the workings of my own mind against me telling me that I'm everything that I'm not, what the Bible tells me that I am in Jesus. No, that's the work of the Holy Spirit that happens for you now. You have personal fellowship with Christ. You get to draw near to him. Deep grace, that's your experience as you draw near to him, but also a deep assurance, assured that you are fully loved, fully redeemed, fully adopted into the family of God because everything that Jesus has done for you. You walk by these realities. The power of that is the Holy Spirit who lives within you. Secondly, we see that it's not just this progression through life that we walk by the Spirit through the work that the Spirit is ministering to us, but we also keep in step with the Spirit. We see this in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So this word actually translates as walk again. Keep in step is actually translated walk, but it's a different word than what we see in verse 16. So it says walk by the Spirit. That's a different word than keep in step. Keep in step, walk, is a follow in another's footsteps that you're getting in line and you're following the leader that's gone before you. And so whose steps is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the footsteps of Jesus. Here's what is happening. At Jesus' baptism, what does Jesus receive? He receives the Holy Spirit. And immediately what happens after Jesus' baptism, he goes into the wilderness. And you know what Luke chapter 4 says about Jesus? That he's full of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus goes into the wilderness, and we all know what happens. At the weakest point of Jesus' life, he lives perfectly before God. He denies all temptation. This is all because of the work of the Holy Spirit. So here's what happens. Passion overcomes passion in Jesus' life. What happens, he's full with the Holy Spirit, which means the godly desires that are inside of him are the things by which he battles and he says no to the desires of the flesh. We know that the desires of the flesh are there for Jesus because Hebrews tells us that. That he experienced every temptation that you and I do, yet was without sin. The way that Jesus overcame all of that, the presence of the Holy Spirit. The affections, the godly desires that were inside of him. The perfect union, the perfect fellowship that he had with God. This deep affection is what overcame the passions of the flesh. So growing affection is how we say no to the desires of our flesh. You say yes to Jesus and the affections that grow, the deep affections and the confident assurance that you have is the power by which you say no to the desires of the flesh. 
So it's out of the overflow of the work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you that you can actually wage war against the desires that live deep inside of you because of your body. This is what it looks like for us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We cultivate deep affection and passion overcomes passion. We don't have to give into or be guided by the desires of our flesh. We actually have a deeper passion, which is the affection and the godly desires that now live inside of you. That's how Jesus said no to the desires of the flesh and we follow in his footsteps. But look, it also means that we treat others in ways that they don't deserve because that's also how Jesus lived his life. Essentially, this means that you apply the gospel that the Holy Spirit is administering to you. You now apply that gospel to other people. Let's look at the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We see three categories. It's a category of our direction towards God, our, the disposition towards others, and then the disposition towards self. You see the disposition towards God, love, joy, and peace. Love means that you serve for the other's good. This is different than the desires of the flesh. You are no longer living just for you, but you actually live and serve for other people's good. Joy is this inward delight in God, that you know him. More importantly, that he knows you. And you get to live in the light of that joy, peace, that you are now at rest in Jesus Christ. Then disposition towards others, patience. You face trouble without blowing up. You're slow with people. Kindness, that instead of the idea of envy or jealousy, but now you look at other people's situation and you can rejoice and you can celebrate with them because there's a quiet confidence deep inside of you because you're secure in Jesus. Goodness, that you're the same person in every situation. That's who Jesus was. Self, disposition towards self. You're faithful, you're reliable, and you're true to your word. Gentleness, you're soft, you're not harsh in any given circumstance. You're under self-control, meaning you don't have the outburst of anger, but you actually show restraint with the desires and the things that are at work in your life through the flesh. Look, all these things are things that Jesus has done and lived in his life and has applied to other people. And because this is how Jesus has treated you when you did not deserve it and the Holy Spirit is ministering this to you in your life, look, you are now enabled through the power of that spirit who lives inside of you to administer it to other people. You see this in Jesus' life constantly. His reputation is that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The people that did not deserve to be with the living God are the very people that Jesus commonly was drawn to. That's good news because that's what he's done for you and me. He drew near to us and because of the love that he's worked inside of us, we now take that same gospel truth and we apply it to other people. And as we do this, 
as we live in, re- in the light and the reality of the Holy Spirit, as he administers and he applies the gospel to our life, and as we work to now apply the gospel to other people's life, where our passion for God overcomes the passions of this desire, here's the result that happens. Your growth. Your growth. The idea that Jesus uses in John 15 and that Paul steals from him here the idea of the fruit of the Spirit is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Because it, it so helpfully depicts what the growth of the Christian life looks like. Tim Keller puts it in four ways. He says, first, it's gradual. You never see botanical growth, right? Like you never see a plant that's growing right before your eyes. The only way that you can actually measure the growth of a plant is over the course of time. And that's exactly what happens with your growth. There's a seed that's planted through the Holy Spirit down in your life, and it grows over time as you walk by the Spirit, as you keep in step with the Spirit. There's growth and change that happens in your life, and it's measured over time. You can't see it all the time. But over the length, two years from now, you'll look back on your life. I didn't respond how I would have two years ago. The impatience was not the impatience that I showed today. So it's gradual. It's also internal, all right? It's not just traits or qualities. There's not just, you have some of these. That can be a trait or a quality. Some of us are more patient than other people. Some of us are more kind than other people. These, those can be traits. This is holistic. Everything that's happening here It's true internal change that's happening inside of you. It can't just be faked as an outward expression. No, it's this internal growth that's taking place inside of you. He says, thirdly, it's symmetrical. It's real real fruit always grows up together. You can't take fruit and go staple it to a tree and say, it's a fruit life-giving tree. The only way that fruit takes place is by deep roots that have settled itself into a soil that's drawing out the natural nutrients of that soil and is producing growth and life to the rest of the tree. The same thing happens in your life. You can't just take different aspects of the fruit of the Spirit and say, I'm going to grow in this while neglecting another thing. No, fruit is symmetrical. It's holistic. It's all happening together. It all is producing. You're only as mature as the least, is the most immature fruit of the Spirit that is in your life. It's holistic. All of this is going to be working inside of you. All the fruit of the Spirit is going to be growing in you. It's symmetrical. And then lastly, it's inevitable. If you have the Spirit, you will grow. It's not a question. It's a promise. So here's... Here's how I want us to think about it, right? There's a story about this man who had passed away and his family gathered for his funeral and he had this incredible casket, marble casket. And so they place the marble top on top of his body. They lower him down into the grave. And what happens apparently is there was a acorn seed that made its way into the man's casket 
before he was lowered into the ground. Now, if you compare the two, an acorn against a slab of marble, what's the idea of who wins? The marble wins every time. You drop a marble on top of an acorn, wins every battle. But this acorn gets, makes its way into the, the coffin of this man that's lowered into the ground. And after the long period and season of time, what happens is a tree grows out of the man's casket, breaks through the marble, breaks through the surface of the ground, grows to be this beautiful acorn tree or oak tree, if you know trees. And people are amazed by what happens. If you know what happens with an acorn, though, you know that it always produces a tree. It always produces life. When you have the Holy Spirit, when you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise is that your growth is inevitable. Your life is symbolic of the man that was lowered into the grave. Dead body. But the Holy Spirit that's in that dead body produces life and it's inevitable. Your growth will be, it's a promise that you will be more like Jesus. It's a guarantee. All right, so I had you say something earlier. I'm gonna have you say something again, all right? Here's what I need you to say. I cannot lose. Say it. Say it, okay, let's do this again, let's do this again. I cannot lose. Look, that is your reality in Jesus. Because you've been given the Holy Spirit, the battle of the Christian life goes from a battle that you cannot win to a battle that you cannot lose. Here's, there's a story from um, the, the period of World War II that I think just perfectly depicts all of this and then we'll close. The experience of the Christian life is a lot like Great Britain back in December of 1941. World War II was in full swing and things were not going well for Great Britain at that point in time. The nation lived in constant fear that Germany was going to be on the attack. It was going to be on the invasion. And everything changed on the morning of December 7th, 1941. If you know your American history, you know that that's the date of Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor happens. Japan attacks America, and America became a full-fledged member of the war. And so after this happens, President Franklin Roosevelt has a phone call with Winston Churchill. And here's what Roosevelt says to Churchill. We're all in the same boat now. And Winston Churchill reflected on this conversation in his memoir, and here's what he said. It should be on the screen for you. No American will think it wrong of me to proclaim that hearing the U.S. was on our side was the greatest joy to me. England would live. Britain would live. The rest of the war would simply be about the proper allocating of overwhelming force. I went to bed that night and slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. So think about Churchill's statement. Nothing had changed about Britain's circumstances. Britain was still in war. Hitler was still on the offensive, yet 
Churchill rested in the assurance of victory that came from the promise of overwhelming force. Christian, this is your reality in the Christian life. The battle of the Christian life goes from a battle that you cannot win to a battle you cannot lose because you have the Holy Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. God has entered into the battle against the flesh with us because he lives with you. So you're no longer in this war by yourself, but you have the power of the Spirit that lives inside of you. And he's guiding. He's, as your life progresses, it's God who goes with you in every season. In every stage, he's always administering the good news of the gospel to you because he's with you wherever you go. And look, you keep in step with the Spirit. We don't wait for sin to bring the battle to us. We take the battle to sin. We crucify it, as Paul talks about in this particular passage. We are waging war against our sin because it is a guarantee that we will be more like Jesus. And because of this, you can be like Churchill and you can go to bed tonight and sleep the sleep of the saved and the thankful. Because it's a battle that you cannot lose. Amen? Let's pray.